Our universe is incredible, surrounded by mystery and beauty, and many of us have questions about our past, present, and future. October Hollum is an intuitive medium with over 20 years of experience. She has assisted people with discovering their path by understanding their past and connected the living to their loved ones who have made the transition. She is currently offering readings through Skype, Zoom, FaceTime, phone, and in person. You can reach her at theancientgift222 at gmail.com. Welcome back to Forbidden Knowledge News. I'm your host, Chris Matthew. Tonight, my guest is Jared Murphy. Um, I do have to thank uh, C60 Purple Power, the amazing super antioxidant. It has me feeling better than I've felt in years. I've even lost over 30 pounds. I feel great, and you should too. Please check out their website to learn more. Just click the link in the description or visit c60purplepower.com. Use coupon code KNOWLEDGE10, and you get 10% off your order plus free shipping. Tonight, I want to welcome back to the show, Jared Murphy. He is a self-experimenter and field researcher of ancient technology and lost history. He's traveled the world searching for evidence of advanced ancestors and high technology. And he is author of the book, It's Not Aliens, Worse, It's Us. Jared, welcome back once again. Let's try this again. And see uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Last how time. Do I, go ahead. Yeah. How do, how do I sound this time? You, you should sound just fine. All right. So. All right. So, uh, yeah, like I said, last time you were on, we barely scratched the surface of your research and information in your book. Tonight, I want to go deeper into not only our hidden history, but take a look at the modern UFO phenomenon. Um, yeah. What I'd like to start is I want to get a little deeper into your theories about the engineered soil. It's uh, I found that very yeah. fascinating, found throughout our ancient past if you give a little recap uh, about what is the engineered soil and how you made this discovery yeah um i went looking to do a book about the paracas mummies of peru which are over nine thousand years old and this turned into uh day three of research turned into a four-year project including six months with my publisher and uh the paracas are very interesting because they're the elongated skulled people that are frequently you know, described as alien looking. And what's interesting about them is that, yeah, there are cultures that you can push heads together, but you know, with a, with like a headband, with a wrap, the thing about the practice is that they have no, they only have a single suture line in their head. And that's very different than ours. You know, we have a cross and it, we have sections of our skull, but the suture line on the skull, of the practice are very different. Um, also their blood work and their DNA it looks like they might be from Crimea or Eurasia. And there are other elongated skulled people all over the world. So like they alone, well, I thought that would be a fascinating start for a story about reanimating mummies. It was going to be more historical fiction. And then day three, I'm watching a documentary about, of course, South America. And they're talking about Colonel Percy Fawcett, who Brad Pitt played in the movie, The Lost World of Z just a few years ago. And Colonel Percy Fawcett, true story, I'm not ruining it for anyone. Uh, you'll find it really quick that he was a surveyor for the British government and he was all over the Amazon. He kept finding uh, black earth and broken pottery and he wanted to go back. And before you know it, he went back with his son and some people and he was never seen again. And I'm not ruining the movie. I mean, you kind of know it going into it, but uh, 
I see a documentary about him. And the last place he was seen was a village along the Amazon. And there was an archaeologist and a host of a show. And I, I do mention it in my book, but they stop in front of about 15 feet of soil, 15, 20 feet. And they're like, yeah, this is called Terra Preta. It's a uh, Portuguese or black earth. It's an engineered soil that uh, filters heavy metals, filters carbon dioxide, which right now we are all about saving the planet. And it also is the richest growing soil on earth times a hundred. And it's a super mystery. Everyone's been, uh, soil scientists have been looking at it for a hundred years and we don't know how to make it. Let's go look for Colonel Percy Fawcett. And I stopped and I went, what? Hold on. I already know that there's megalithic buildings all over that there's no way the, the Incans, there's no way the Egyptians built or, or even the Greeks, you know, we have the Temple of Delphi. A lot of people don't know that Malta and uh, there's megalithic polygon construction all over the earth. And it's like, well, none of this adds up. And how is there even the word prehistory? How lazy is that? It's like, this is my pre-homework assignment. You know, there's not a thing, you know, it's like, this is my pre-work work. You know, it's just work, you know, you get paid or you don't. And so here's um, what turns into three and a half years of research is to find that terra preta, this engineered soil is in North Africa. It's in Brazil to the tune of, by the way, their current estimating an area twice the size of Spain or twice the size of Great Britain. Now that's a significant amount of soil, but it's not just in Brazil. It's in Central America. It's in North America, Canada. It's, and again, remind that the same recipes in Australia, Brazil, middle, middle central South America and Northern Africa, that alone with carbon dating past 7,000 years means that that's not a subject that when you look at the soil, when I started doing the research, uh, looking at soil scientists and their research, they would, they would talk about all the properties of the soil. So it could, again, it also had piezoelectric properties. So it had uh, current, it could manage currents. And so here's the richest growing soil on earth. And in Europe, from Siberia through North America, they're called Chernozems. It's a different style. And all of this is ancient engineered soil in land, first and foremost. So no theory yet. What we know is that it's, uh, it exists. We don't know how to make it. In modern biology, in modern science, it's called biochars. And so it's a combination. Like if you and I were going to open up uh, an apple orchard, we would have a modern biochar, which is it, which will have a recipe that includes burnt remnants of a certain kind of tree or certain other elements. If you wanted to grow wheat or corn, you would add it in just like any other fertilizer, except that it's generally something that is burnt of a natural origin. But the thing is, Terra Preta, they don't know how to make it. And why does it filter heavy metals? Why is it essentially self-sustaining for thousands of years? And ironically, there is a black market for the black soil. So think of it as your most badass plot potting soil. This is not sexy so far, right? But this is what it is. And this is uh, something that soil scientists have tried to mimic and copy, but nowhere near, it is still better to dig up the old stuff, either in Ukraine where they're selling it apparently to the tune of almost 200 million a year, or in South America, it's easier to reuse that than it is to from what we've come up with. It's just not the same thing. And so again, here's the other problem in the paradigm of this 140 plus year old theory of out of Africa and this very Western 
uh, mindset of where we're from. Uh, well, everything important happened in the Fertile Crescent because it also equals Eden. Oh, yeah, that's where the Garden of Eden was. So uh, standard Western archaeology and academia can marry uh, the biblical and their history and the Greeks become important. The Romans become important. Uh, Egypt, you know, everything's here first. Oh, and then something happened in Asia. Well, if, if you have engineered soil on every continent in a time frame that doesn't add up to ancient Sumer and Sumerians, if you have 7,000 year old biochar just for one carbon dating, what you see is uh, I, I found a lot of, th a lot of papers, not that we're getting into it yet, but I got down this road of mixing your, your big picture, uh, our big view is this, that there is engineered soil all over the planet. And I have a background in historical remodeling and construction and engineering and doing additions and heavy structural loads. That's all a part of it. And one of the problems then is uh, you have these giant megalithic structures all over the earth. And one of the things that's never pointed out, they'll say, oh, look at this amazing structure at Ol Yante Tambo or Sakse Waman or in northern africa just pick almost every egyptian site starting with the great pyramid and well there are megalithic polygonal cymatic walls which uh researchers standard academics were able to point out that well these blocks have no mortar they interlock together can't fit a piece of paper between them and they cancel earthquakes and then more recently uh as i did my research found that there are seismic metamaterials which are as small as dust and crystal to larger objects. And what they do is they're placed under a building. And it's also part of just building a building that researchers in Europe found that Greco-Roman amphitheaters, that ancient megalithic structures had foundational elements, including the soil in their research. And depending on where you would place trees, uh, tall buildings, you could create safe zones. And basically in the study of seismic metamaterials, they couldn't help but note that ancient structures that were credited to later dynastic peoples really appeared to be built to withstand and measure where in the earth, at what distance, is this wave going to hit our either single building or our whole city? And they were building for this. And now we have engineered soil which is not a new thing, but it's not interesting because archaeology started to find cool things to stick on your mantle above your fireplace. Archaeology was not started for a noble purpose. There's biblical archaeology, which uh, once they figured out, wow, uh, they weren't even sure. There was They literally didn't touch the Bible for a while, ironically, about proving out that the Bible was a historical reference. That wasn't always the case. They thought it was allegory or a story, an analogy. There were plenty of people who were like, ah, you know, if it's not there, it would mess with our corporate system. So it wasn't researched. So when they did start finding uh, all the ancient cities and when they did finally start digging up the Egyptian Sphinx and the, it was already buried. And when they started digging up, they go, wow, Moses was actually here. And you know, they were able to go at it for a reason other than finding cool art objects. But there wasn't an interest in saving the bones at the site. And there certainly isn't an interest in soil because it's not a mummy. It's not gold. It's not jewels. So here's where it gets really interesting. As you start digging and looking at seismic metamaterials and we start, and this will tie into our future UFO talk today, is that this engineered soil is not only really great for growing and doing all these other things, but when you write in the smack dab of my research, a lot of things timed out well, like the Guatemalan LIDAR research, where archaeologists in mainstream, uh, sponsored in part by National Geographic, 
do a 5,000 rectangular shaped survey in Guatemala, which in Central America, this isn't the biggest country. Yet, when you look at the scale of Guatemala and you look at 5,000 square miles, that's a that's nothing compared to the country. And what they found in 800 miles was 60,000 structures and superhighways that have only now just barely, we've been scratching the surface for the last year and a half going, uh, Actual in my book, I quote one of the archaeologists that said, uh, "Archaeologists used to believe that South America was where civilization went to die. We need we need to consider that we've grossly underestimated the populations of South America, and we could watch this one. They actually published this and say we could safely determine based on these findings that there was fifteen to twenty million people. Now, for a long time, we believed that there was a land bridge sometime before or after Younger Dryas." And which is this big catastrophe, the biblical flood stuff. And a bunch of people came across a land bridge and they got really busy. They populated all of North America, Central America, South America. And for the longest time, I remember reading that there was only five or six million people on the entire continent. And that's just ludicrous. And we're only in Guatemala. So now if you layer uh, like a big adult game of archaeological clue, it was not Colonel Mustard with the shovel in the desert. And here we have, okay, engineered soil in North America, Canada, it's in Australia, which was just supposed to be our original. And then we have uh, all over Europe, uh, in North Africa, uh, we have identical uh, biochars called Terra Preta. What does this say? Well, just like Gobekli Tepe that wasn't supposed to be there 12,000 to 20,000 to 30,000 years ago, depending on the, bio, depending on the research you've seen, uh, we have engineered soil all over the earth that could only have been used if there was a population. So yes, if we had a really dirty planet and like now we make one of our gross assumptions is one, we're at the highest level of technology, which does not appear to be the case after I did three and a half years of research. Two, you have engineered soil in places that would indicate then, yeah, if it's a really rich growing soil, yeah, it seems like just based on the LIDAR in Guatemala that what if this is not the first time we were at 8 billion? And what if we were at a much more efficient billions and we had soil that filtered the carbon dioxide? We didn't have a third of the problems. And something we just touched on, it has piezoelectric properties. It actually could be used mixed with, and this was the next layer that blew my mind. No one has done any core sampling. And I was talking to Mohammed Abraham yesterday from Egypt and you know you know Mohammed. Yeah, he's and really amazing, yeah, amazing researcher. I know. And it was I was so lucky. I, I was so excited to interview him yesterday. And I brought this whole thing up that you and I are talking about. And I'm not speaking for him, but I'll tell you what he told me. He goes, Jared, I told him what I said about as a builder and a restoration remodeler and dealing with old homes, which is a joke. I'm dealing with homes that are 150 years old, not possibly tens of thousands or thousands or millenniums. And when we go back to this statement about Ollante Tambo or Sakse Waman or all of Egypt and the Great Pyramid, what people don't understand is that not only do all these soils have a personality and different characteristics, it's not just one thing. It's not an alchemy. The science that goes into creating all these different characteristics of the soil, are that's just one aspect. The other aspect is when you build multi-ton, 800, 1,000-ton polygonal blocks that fit together, not only do you need the machinery for that and the devices to measure in the earth how that earthquake is going to affect those buildings, 
but you have to build a foundation of that building. A lot of people don't understand that even homes in the upper half of, uh, of like I'm in Minnesota, we have basements. Well, they pre-compact the soil for that little tiny foundational wall, which is 12 inches wide. And you build it out about two feet and you dig and you run a tamper, which is about 80, 90 pounds. It's gas powered and it tamps the ground really fast and it pre-compacts the soil as after you've dug the hole. And then you throw in class five gravel, which is essentially everyone who's ever been on a dirt road knows that, you know, it's a little bit of sand, a little bit of chunks of rock, not fun to walk on and bare feet, but then you put that in and then it gets tamped down. And so you've tamped on the soil, you've tamped on the rock, you've tamped in sand, and every builder, by the way, is supposed to do this to 90% or better. And I'll tell you how many do it, maybe one, but I doubt it. So now you have these giant megalithic buildings that some are like 5, 10, 12 feet wide, and they've been standing, even if the dynastic people like the Incans, Mayans, uh, Egyptians, uh, Harapin in India, the... uh, um, Cambodia's Angkor Wat, if all these structures were built by those people, why are they still essentially level, right? So the technology to just, there's two two aspects to this. One is, what did they do to the soil that they actually compacted it enough that it actually is so level, like the Great Pyramid? And I brought all this up, by the way, with Mohammed yesterday, and he said to me, Jared, no one has done this research. And I talked to archaeologists, and so I am planning digs and I'm planning to go out in the field and prove this out. But here's what's exciting and way more sexy than the golden monkey that, you know, Indiana Jones found. This is way more exciting because the soil isn't just about the growing or the piezoelectric. It's how it connects to the buildings themselves. So as you take core samples under the building, it's not just the depth of the wall itself and that it's polygonal. What if there are five or 10 or 20 layers? What if when they pre-compacted a foundation where where we only have a couple of feet of soil that's been pre-compacted to place a roll of blocks or to pour concrete on, when we get under these megalithic buildings, what are the chances that they're pre-compacted to 10 feet? 10 feet would be insane. 20 feet, 30 feet, 40 feet. And what if one of the layers, just like a good example is in Egypt, uh, the Aswan... Um, quarry, a lot of locations like Baalbek, Lebanon, the location for the blocks that came, some uh, some of the large stones that are like nine, 800 to 1,000 tons came from a quarry that's within three miles of Baalbek. But some came from hundreds of miles away. And same thing in Egypt where you have 500 to 1,000 miles before these blocks came. But what if some of the layers of pre-compaction material what if they've crossed continents just like the engineered soil that made it to North Africa? What if a crushed particular type of limestone or quartzite was used specifically for X number of layers? So we're digging a little deep for a second, but the idea is the very foundations that all these megalithic structures for all the ignoring of um, all these large megalithic blocks that are still in situ in mud the fact is there are walls and platforms that stand on their original foundation and zero research because it's not, there's no gold, there's no art and it doesn't prove anything culturally, but what it does do it, it proves technology and it, we know from the blocking itself, not a theory that it moves with earthquakes. And the reason my theory would be is that the reason polygonal blocks are shaped the way they are is because they were able to work out not only 
earthquake canceling or wave resonators, they were also able to work out positive waves and frequencies that they wanted to hit the building, just like the Nazca lines, the Bolivian Nazca lines. They're not obviously in Nazca, but if you look up Bolivian Nazca lines, you're going to see that the lines, not the animals, but the big, long antenna earth circuit looking lines that go on kilometers and kilometers with no inch variation and are treated with arsenic again with piezoelectric properties they're all over the earth so you mix that engineered soil in engineered foundations not just their pre-compaction but the composition and where those compositions are from and whether or not there are nanostructures and then you mix it with all the other anomalous finds on the planet you end up having a paradigm and a story shift, a narrative shift that just isn't within the parameters of what we've been telling ourselves about where we're from and what we've done. Because the Paracas, which we started with, the reason I was fascinated by, by them is that they have been naturally preserved in Peru to at least 9,000 years. And I thought that was just fascinating enough for a fake story. I was just going to write some fiction. But the Paracas aren't just from here or from south they're likely from crimea based on recent genetic testing here's another one not that you think changing the narrative more than the word conspiracy why is it that not one archaeological institution in reference to modern academia and i know it's a self-evident answer but the issue is uh genetic testing it's not just these mummies it's pre-dynastic egyptians they're genetically very different but the point is no one it within this academic model in a big 10 college will touch the genetic information. And literally there is soft tissue in 3000 year old mummies. I got to speak personally with Nassim Harriman. I was able to sit there as he told me about Jared, it's a 3000 year old mummy. I was taking out optical nerve and brain tissue that was soft. There should not be soft tissue in a 3000 year old mummy. And that in itself is interesting. And so all these layers put me into three and a half years of looking at uh, uh, there's math, there's other science, and I'll shut up and let you ask, where else would you like to go with this? Because like you said, there's, there's so many places to go. It's, it's amazing. Right. <laughs> I want to go back to the uh, polygonal construction Oh yeah, structures. Could you tell us a little bit more about the significance of that? And you know, it, it was used in most of these megalithic sites, right? Yeah, yeah, everywhere. And so here's a big problem with looking at every site that you find. And nanoarchaeology is becoming more prominent. And I, I kind of, I'm not saying I coined it. I just keep calling it that because uh, right now, uh, even at Tiwanaku and in, in uh, you know, up near Lake Titicaca. Um, the issue is that local people bust up the buildings and use them for their homes. It's somehow easier to go bust up an existing pile of granite than it was to go get something new. The Greeks did it. The Egyptians did it. There are whole buildings uh, that they just tore apart. So we have anywhere you see polygonal construction, there are two fascinating things. One, it was in situ, it was there, and when dynastic people came along, they left it because it was so well-constructed, like Ollante Tambo and Sacsayhuaman and these huge massive walls that are all over, including the Temple of Delphi is one graphically quick example, the walls all, but it's so old that there's that slip of paper. Um, 
there, there's large gaps now, but what's important about this polygonal masonry is that it's not four-sided blocks. And even if they were, just imagine a four-sided block, which they're not. Some of them are eight-sided, 15-sided. They have even more. And they're in the ground. Some are laid as pavers. So the thickness of these things, they, we're talking six by 12 by 10 by sometimes 15 feet. The thickness and the depths and the dimensions are staggering. And what they do is because there's no joinery between them, when we build a brick home, we just take a crap load of concrete and we smash it. Uh, we just drop it between a couple uh, bricks and we can level and set the brick cover we want because uh, well, the mortar is just making it sit. These people are carving out uh, quartzites, granites, you know, uh, basalt. They're doing things on the Mosley hard scale that are at the tops in a time period where it's been pointed out over and over. Well, they didn't have anything better than copper tools, yet they're cutting and polishing the hardest stones on earth, uh, high quartz content. Uh, so again, you get into that piezoelectric range. It's very interesting. You have Yusef Arif, uh, in, uh, who Muhammad Abraham uh, also used to work with. Those guys do experiments with different, uh, basically, elect electric nodes that are powered to 500,000 volts just with stone. And that's a great experiment to go look at. That's on Uncharted X. I have no association with them, but uh, he's pretty cool. And you can watch a video of that there. So they knew how to put together these different stones to not just stop earthquakes, but these are foundational structures. We have no idea what they looked like when they were done. There are a lot of buildings now. When you see an apartment building go up now, they're very loft looking everywhere. I think it's pretty common now in the country to uh, do these modern loft apartments. And you'll see that the first 20 feet is concrete. Uh, the commercial space, they dig into the ground, they'll build underground parking, at least in a lot of places. And the first 20 feet or 30 feet, it's a commercial space. The columns even look like Gobekli Tepe. They look like monolithic standing stones. But up to six or eight stories above are all wood. So whether you got the wiring in the walls or anything else, you're talking about a structure that after a fire, mold, damage, reuse, uh, you have nothing left then but the foundation. So again, think Sakse Waman, think Puma Punku, think um, all the places we've talked about. And the assumption is, well, they knew how to measure how bad an earthquake would hit a place. They know how to engineer soil for all these amazing qualities and properties. And they're measuring the frequencies, just the, the instrument equipment that would be necessary to measure these are as complex as the machines in order to cut and side and fit. There's no gaps in these. Yeah, after they've been sitting there and they've been weathered, there are gaps, but there are no gaps when they were built. Anywhere that they're still perfectly in situ, these polygonal blocks fit perfectly together on every side. And we're not thinking four sides. Think five or 10 sides and think this isn't a brick that you can pick up with one hand. These are uh, 50 tons, 80 tons, 100 tons, 1,000 tons. And they're literally everywhere on every continent. And they have personalities that are all the same. They have a keystone cuts, which is, again, why would you need metal to connect them in, uh, unless it wasn't about current property? So there's communication. We're not even discussing the fact that you are trying to disperse an earthquake, but also 
you have piezoelectric property in the soil between buildings. You have the building itself with this high crystalline quartz content, which is very computer-ish and very frequency and resonant driven. And then we don't have finished materials left on these buildings. So again, we're speculating as we look at these polygonal buildings, the technology we can see is insurmountably, I mean, it, it's super tremendously complex. And then you have um, no idea what the top half of these structures look like, because if you can handle a thousand ton block and bring it from miles away, and in the case of, of Lake Titicaca in that area, 13,000 feet above sea level with a quarry that's 75 miles away and literally two and a half miles lower, I don't think people get that wasn't a straight walk. And so what we have is a society that is using, as we piece together this big adult game of Clue, uh, technology at every level that points to a genetically advanced society like the Paracas. We know now that there is a mystery human ancestor that the reason we know there's, okay, when I say mystery, I don't mean only one. I don't mean the first one, which is the greatest thing about archaeology. They always find the first one. But I'm talking about, we know that Neanderthal and Denisovan, and now we have a new mystery ancestor that they've identified. Uh, but we also have the Paracas, who are literally born with different entries for their neck, different suture lines on their head, their four magnum, which is where the arteries go into the head and into the skull, totally different than us. Well, we have them, and they're all over the planet. So there's a whole bunch of different kinds of humans that we know mixed together 50,000 years ago. And there are even polygonal megalithic structures. There's one off the coast of Cuba that I include in my book that was found during, uh, they were looking for Spanish gold from, from galleons that were stealing stuff from South America. And that city would not have been above ground. At least it would have been 50,000 years ago. There is a theory of hydroponic plate shifting. So the idea that the tectonic plates that they were measuring, that at some point the water in the ocean got under those plates and that eventually that water burst back through. And that's one of the theories about why something sunk and some things went up and why water levels changed. So that's one, uh, that is a known theory that doesn't get talked about as much. Hydroponic, hydrostatic plate shifting, sorry, <laughs> hydroponic. That's a different issue. But yeah, so what we have then is this genetic mystery that when you table it, you have an international society of human beings that were building megalithically at least 50,000 years ago. It's not like they planned for the flood. So they were doing it much longer. We have an identical gene match to Denisovan and Neanderthals being mixed in with our bloodlines at least 50,000 years ago, but we're showing signs of advanced megalithic construction. Uh, at least 50,000 years ago. Now that doesn't line up with Western archaeology, but guess what? It sure lines up with the Hindu Vedas. It sure lines up with their, uh, again, it's, we're all, we're, any writing that's post-apocalyptic, younger, driest slash the last 6,000 years, we have to take all of our post-flood mythologies as a grain of salt, but there are truths in them. And the longest and oldest running written, uh, history and because it is a history but in reference to religion it is the oldest written continuously written language and uh the hindu vedas represent an incredibly old religion and history and they 
And as it's been pointed out on a ton of shows, they talk about UFOs, they talk about uh, weapons of the gods, but that's how it would appear to dynastic humans if they had survived and were included in a flood and that were part of a higher, more advanced technology society, which now that we're talking the genetics of the Paracas, one of the things that might be in everyone's mind, which is what I challenge people to consider in the book, and it's worth still, no matter what we're talking about, worth reading, is that, okay, they could measure earthquakes and frequencies and waves and incorporate them into the structures of buildings as energy. They could use lines like the Nazca lines. There's these different genetic lines. And instead of thinking of them as accidental, accidental adaptations of a genealogy, of a genealogy I cannot talk today. Um, but the idea would be that they would have control of the human genome. Uh, because they were doing it. I, it's not a matter of there was just a bunch of, we all get stuck. There's this paradigm that just drives me nuts. And it's this paradigm that, <laughs> uh, like recently, I'm, I'm not going to mention them, but I'm going to say that there are some structures on earth that like to label, hey, if everything ever gets out of hand, remember the earth is only good with so many people on it. Really? Where's your manual? Where's the manual that said you need 50 million uh, bison, uh, 50,000 woolly mammoth, and 8 billion mosquitoes? But make sure there's only X amount of people. It, the hubris it takes to assume that there was a snapshot of the perfect earth. Oh, by the way, turn middle America back into the Jurassic swamp it was 250 million years ago. I mean, it, it literally makes no sense. The assumption, one of the paradigms you have to throw out, instead of tabling theories uh, is, instead of tabling facts to fit theories, let's just take all the facts from our genes to this new collective human consciousness that we are experiencing again, because I think that does have to do with the total number of people on the planet that has to do with human RAM. But getting it back to genetically different Paracas, Denisovan, Neanderthal, Mystery Human, all these abilities and technologies means that there's a people on the planet, at least pre-younger Dryas that likely could manipulate genes and not just manipulate, but they engineered soil. They likely like we go and get plastic surgery. Uh, if they're communicating and sending energy and frequencies through whole buildings, there's a good chance that they were also doing it through each other and through a collective human consciousness, but not unconsciously, not at 10 to 14% in safe mode like we are now, but actually fully conscious. And that means that if they chose, for instance, to tie into like, say, the Tic Tac UFO, if you were going to do zero point turns and you've been on this planet for possibly millions or thousands, there. Every time I say something, I know people could get caught on any one thing and then I want to stop and explain it. So if you want to internet search Clerkstorp spheres, these Clerkstorp spheres are from South Africa. They are approximately three and a half billion to two and a half billion years old. They are man-made. They are concretions. They are not natural concretions. I've seen them. I was in South Africa. I got to see them at Stone Circle Lodge in person. I was there, you know, Michael Tellinger's place. I was invited. I was there for a month doing research in January. But the Klerksdorf spears are the oldest man-made object on earth, and they're two and a half to three and a half billion years old. Nothing is left of a Model T after a hundred years. I mean, they they rust out. We we barely 
can manage to keep track of it to become a fossil or to become anything in the historical record that we find is the exception, not the rule. And so when you get things that are tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years old that have been occupied by dynastic peoples and readapted and rebuilt and repaired, you start to see a progression of restoration and remodeling that mutates the original form. Polygonal construction indicates a different level of technology, which we can definitely point to and say, uh, somebody was measuring frequencies and earthquakes. And also this engineered soil, we can't make it. We literally don't know how to make it. We have electron microscopes and we can't figure out the recipe and it does all these things. And then we have the practice. So here we are with UFOs and we think we're the most fascinating planet in the galaxy or, or uh, just like we leave 155 tribes alone on the planet, there just happens to be some 0.30 plus you know, Mach 30 flying zero point turning humans that instead of going in for a nose job, uh, they go in and decide, I'm going to program myself to be slightly shorter with bigger eyes that do direct onboard conscious communication with my ship that does zero point turns. I go where I want. I do what I want. And, ooh, hey, you humans. I mean, think Rick and Morty and the battery episode. For all you out there that haven't seen that, you should watch it. But, you know, Rick tells Morty to put on these antennae because we're aliens. So anyone can show up on this planet, like a recent news article that just came out, I think, today or yesterday. I with that, that Yeah, with the Israeli spokesperson. Yes. Like, yes. And, and there's been, so in the world of ufology, um, uh, you know, to kick in on some of what you were talking about, the, the, here's the deal. When you look at the facts in the ground, so here's the problem. They're like, but there could be aliens. So I'm not, let's just get this off the table. There might be aliens. It's not that there's not more intelligent life, but we're not that complex for interdimensional space traveling uh, beyond uh, light speed driven aliens. We're not that interesting. But if this is a home world, and when you look at all the ruins down to the soil, possibly down to the foundational structures themselves, the genetic lineages, and if we started looking at maritime archaeology and look at the complexities of our very own reawakening abilities, like Wim Hof, I'm a practitioner of Wim Hof. I, I do cold showers, I do the meditative breathing, and it immediately connects me in a way that is trippier than you could ever imagine. And it is a real thing that Wim Hof, holding 26 world records, has said, this is something we forgot that we can do. It's a true statement. These abilities, as opposed to thinking about my problems on a cloud in some yoga class, I mean, I'm all for it. If it works for you, good for you. But imagine immediately hitting a switch. Doing Wim Hof is like hitting a switch and you're like, I'm not needing to imagine anything. I'm immediately grounded and connected in a way that is unexplainable until you learn how to do it. And these abilities mixed with these finds mixed with abilities like synesthesia, where all your senses can see, touch, and do things beyond your body that where you can sense other people. You can literally not just imagine, but see someone else touch someone and feel what they feel, that you can see numbers, geospatial alignments, colors, and smells, all of it intermixing. This is an ability. If we go through that, we could do a whole show just on all these genetic abilities. But if you table those facts, table these other facts and table, again, if we had no engineered soil, no polygonal construction on every continent, and if we already knew that we hadn't lost whole continents like Doggerland, 
in Europe and in Indonesia and New Zealandia. I'm not talking 250 million years ago. I'm talking 6,000, 8,000, 15,000 years ago, well within this massive worldwide society that there is a good chance that you're talking about a massive human population that was highly advanced that got hit not only naturally, but maybe by some weaponized disaster. And in that they survived. There are rock cut ruins, which I'm writing about my next book uh, that I could not include. It's ridiculous. I, I mentioned it at the end of my book. It's like, literally there's a whole book here about pretty much laser cut, rock cut, mysterious ruins all over the planet. And when, and, and I'm getting into it, but they survived and not equally clearly they did not repopulate the whole planet. Clearly, after some massive catastrophe, dynastic people, people, survivors took over what was once Tanis in Egypt's capital. And they, they mimicked the Greeks, same thing. And prior to the Greeks, they called them the Etruscans. There's one of our mysteries with Tartaria. And again, we're talking about uh, an empire that is rarely discussed that spanned from Asia. We're talking Mongolia, like way out the same Corinthian style pillars from Asia way at the end, all the way to what you call Greece and all of it readapted by these surviving peoples and whether it's benevolence, whether it's indifference, that's why I say it's not aliens worse. It's us discovering our lost history. The issue is there are clearly with all the active interactions with what are called UFOs. Well, they got to be from another planet. Well, you have to ignore all the facts because we haven't touched the science yet of the math that's been found and everything else. We clearly have had a lost, broken, high-tech human society that in the pieces of their survival could easily maintain and go beyond or stay at whatever they had developed for tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years. And the remnants of that, whether we like it or not, there are plenty of places on this planet to hide or be and not be noticed. And that means that if you want to come back to the planet and on any level interact with us, uh, you can look like whatever you want and say, oh, I'm an alien. Um, we just don't think you're all ready for us. Don't tell anyone, but we'll work with this government. Oh yeah, you found that. Why would an alien race be worried about just as an idea, just one of the holes in this situation? Uh, if governments now, post-World War I, World War II, particularly World War II. You have modern governments as opposed to corporate religious institutions like the Holy Roman Church. And not all of them, but even within the Holy Roman Church, I, I would assume very, very high-level organizations finding ancient high technology and re re-engineering it or managing to use it on their own. My publisher, Olaf Phillips, he wrote a whole book about the secret space program. Um, my publisher owns uh, Paranoia Press, Anomalies Publishing, or Paranoia Press, and uh, you know Paranoia Magazine, and uh, that whole concept of the United States military or Russia or fill in the blank government being a hundred, hundred and fifty years ahead of with with technology that they found. This isn't technology that crashed because it was foreign entities from another dimension or another planet. This is technology that they're reengineering because. There's many ruins that do not get talked about. There are military archaeologists. Every base has them assigned. There are whole groups. You want to find some interesting stuff? Talk to some archaeologists that are that are actually 
in the field at these actual bases that are digging bunkers. Well, yeah, there have and, been even military conflict conflicts launched uh, under the guise of you know whatever's yeah. happening that they're going to go for these um, kind of expeditions. These uh, yeah, that archaeological Admiral Byrd's trip. Yeah, everybody likes to get excited about Admiral. I mean, it is interesting. Admiral Byrd going to Antarctica in 1947. Did he go up against uh, uh, based out Nazis? Did he enter into a large void with a sun-like object? And you know, there's there's all of that. And that's just one example, but it's really easy to uh, have a narrative where you go, yeah, no, no, I saw an alien. And uh, by the way, everyone, I, I was at contact in the desert two years in a row and I saw unidentified uh, objects. I mean, I, I, I went to big rock. I, I could not believe what I saw for over two or three hours. I'm like, this is ridiculous. I'm not seeing one or two. I'm seeing groups of them. And th these were the, if anyone's wondering, they were the triangle ish shaped ones with the, the points of light on them. And at first I'm like, okay. Cause I, I have a few hours in the air doing some flight training. I'm not an expert. Uh, you know, I wasn't in the Navy or air force, but I, I know a little bit about actually flying. I know a little bit about, um, movie magic and filming and optical illusions. And especially at least from a photography and film standpoint, I understand a lot of different ways the eyes can play tricks on you. And I'm watching these objects in the air where it's blink, blink, blink. And suddenly I'm, and I'm watching them from, they must've been at least 50, 80 miles. Away. I mean, they were in the air and the next thing you know, it was blinking and flashing and showing up. 10 miles away and then going back and I'm like, well, no, there's two, two sets of them. And one's just turning off his lights. And then the other one, and I'm like, no, they're traveling. And I could see them bounce back from different spots. And, and I'm watching this for two and a half, three hours. It was crazy to watch this. And this is an example of, are these um, military UFOs with capabilities that are just way beyond what we're exposed to commercially or are they actual UFOs that are the, and, and this is the other mystery. If the United States military, Navy and air force are going to come out, which they have and said, Hey, we have a program and, and everyone knows us that's into this for those that don't it's uh, it's pre-contact in the desert last year. And right as I don't know, I'm not like they had a contract with them, but I remember the air force coming out going, Hey, look, so, uh, we need the public's help and we've been looking at UFOs and it, it just gets a blip on the news. <laughs> it's like, why isn't this in the news every day? Like we have, we have the Paracas of Peru with genetically different bodies. No one's doing the genetic testing because it will destroy the paradigm. It will shift the narrative yet every day you could put a picture. You could have a three column site, uh, the Paracas and all the latest genetic testing. You could do everything about Gobekli Tepe and being honest about engineered soil. And then you could do a whole nother thing about, oh yeah. And all high level first world governments just came out with the next following statement about UFOs. Right. And so, we know they're not related. Yeah, I, I want to connect a lot of those things that we that you just said. Now, you know, we have the Paracas skulls. We have little people. We have evidence of of tall people. You know, with, with some yep. called giants. Uh, we have evidence of this. Uh, and then when you combine this with the fact that you know these ancient alien theorists, so you know, it's always aliens. It's always got to be aliens that are that are coming. But if you look at it from from this perspective, that 
there was just different kinds of humans, you know, throughout history. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so fascinating. But then when yeah. we combine that with these breakaway societies that could have possibly still be around these ancient advanced societies that could be aliens to us. Like we look at the greys, they have the, the, you know, the big eyes, your typical yeah. greys, who says that they haven't engineered suits or robots to, to be these entities. And they're just kind of checking out society um, from afar and just visiting every once in a while. That is, that's a fascinating thought to me. So uh, Ray Kurzweil in 2008 releases a book called The Singularity is Near. I don't know if you've read it. I did. Um, it's fascinating because I had gotten into quantum physics. I, I read, um, I, I'm just, I'm sorry, I'll out myself as a nerd. I, I was reading uh, In Search of Schrodinger's Cat when I was 19, 18, and I found all of this fascinating. And I was trying to track, you know, when are we going to get a quantum computer? When is all this stuff going to change? And then, you know, 3D printing's on the horizon. And the next thing you know, so Kurzweil writes this book, which is relevant to this day. I know I just said it was 2008. But in it, he gives the actual models of what was going on in nanotechnology right then and there, which included a Wi-Fi-enabled, self-replicating nanobots that were made by nanofactories that were parts of atoms in size between 80 and 150 atoms. Okay, so we were making, for everyone out there listening, 80 to 150 atom-sized machines, factories, that built nanobots within those structures, which would also be inside like a human body, to create nanobots that could enter a single cell. And they could be Wi-Fi controlled. And this is in 2008. Uh, there's a number of other things. We had created a model of the world, excuse me, a flat map. And I think that I thought it was so cool. They did it on 18 hydrogen atoms. It's the coolest thing. And so what he does is he goes through this whole book, which is, uh, you know, it's gotten praised to the point that sounds a bit like John Lennon and the Beatles talking about being, you know, more popular than Jesus, which wasn't his point. It was just like, I can't believe people think we're this cool. I mean, he wasn't trying to take a knock at it, but Here's Kurzweil's book, and they say it's the most important book written since the Bible. It is what he, Kurzweil himself holds over 200 patents. I have no idea how many it is now. He's a modern living Leonardo da Vinci. He's the reason Google started a university, literally Google University. Kurzweil is a directorial member. He's part of the send, not the Quantum Institute, but the uh, the idea of longevity, the institute that is researching uh, eternal life. Uh, but the deal is. This book goes through the philosophical points of what would happen if you had the ability to control every gene and cell. Every cell, you yourself, are replaced within a year. So it used to be a few weeks. and I mean, we had some theories that it was three months, but every cell in your body is replaced within a year. Think about that. There's no part of you that's older than a year. Uh, we age, but that's a mechanism. So what if you could replace every cell in your body? And I'm just paraphrasing Kurzweil's theories here, which is just simply, well, it's anybody who's going down a rabbit hole and maybe a little high or maybe not. But this is one of those things where it's like, okay, if you could replace every cell in your body with like a diamondoid crystalloid structure, you would literally be the man of steel. It wouldn't matter if you're in a car accident, not that I'd recommend it, but uh, you choosing to have a body 
this brings us to our grays and the 1 million different ways people are calling aliens now. So there's grays and Palladians and uh, uh, Lumerians and reptilians. reptilians. Yeah, slee stacks. Nothing like the land of the lost. Um, so there's all these different uh, ideas of, oh, well, I, I know there's this race and that race. It's like what you know is here's what we're going to really go with is that in a society that has 3D printers, in a society that can control quantum level nanobots, literally spintronics, the idea, the whole point of quantum computing is to the spin of an electron. It's not even a whole atom. An electron is a theoretical part, by the way. It's not even a real thing. And spintronics is the study of quantum computing. And it's a, it's a great thing to go look up. And the deal is you as a human having this level of control because we're already creating custom babies. We're already doing custom gene splitting. We're already the hot, we are barely hot second out of cloning a goat. And we've cloned a lot of things. Hell, they've even replicated, they've cloned, they didn't create the whole thing, but they've replicated mummy DNA. That's been done. So what do you do with a society that is well on its way? We're printing, we have, I, I pointed out in the book, we're printing 3D, we're 3D printing organic structures like livers, kidneys, hearts, ears, nose, fill in the blank. There's even portable power tools that surgeons can use to fill in a wound with 3D printing organic material. From I mean, this is right out of Fifth Element. And so you have this ability now. What do you do with a society that could do it 50,000, 80,000, 100,000, or Kirkstorp Sphere? 3.5 billion years ago. What does that society look like now? So when you say, hey, this guy is definitely not human. Why? Because with your eyes and your level of uh, going to the plastic surgeon and veneers for your teeth, you don't think they can just uh, today. Kurtzwell's point is that if you consciously as a construct didn't want to have a body for the day, you would literally not need a body because your entire consciousness is living within a quantum structure that you either have in a host. Like right now we have this conversation, but we're both free jumping off of cliffs and on Mars and experiencing both locations and experiences at the same time that there is a level of technology that that's possible. And believe me, we could go on about all the different ways we could blow ourselves up because look at the deserts around the earth. Look at the fact that there was a disaster. It's, and, and I know it'd be really romantic to chalk it up to just the Younger Dryas or, or the other cosmic impacts, but I'm more nervous and scared, not scared, just the idea that uh, we did weaponize to a point that we did not get along. And like you said, there's the moon-eyed people that the Cherokee talk about and the little people that the Hawaiians talk about. I mean, literally all over the earth, there's the little people I've I've talked about them and then giants. I mean, just even 10 or 12 feet right now, somebody has gigantism and we go, Oh, that's an accident. Well, what if it wasn't an accident? What if it's just a set of programming that we forgot how to finish the programming? And so we are way too early in the stages of research to table. Well, we're, how did it all start? We actually can't table that, but we can start tabling these other interesting engineered facts because it's not limited to humans. I don't want to digress off the point of an alien can look alien because they choose to program a body that would be most functional with the technology and the travel they choose. Just like you decide you don't like your nose or your cheeks, and I'm staying away from the word boob job, 
But the fact is, is that uh, that's it. It's going in and modifying your body to do zero point turns and having an immediate uh, hair trigger to the millionth degree a contact, which fighter pilots now in the F-22s and they have direct mind control of, of, of weapons controls and radars. There, there is actual mind reading going on now on fighter, fighter planes. But imagine being in something like a Tic Tac that literally fighter jets get to watch blow off screen at at least Mach 22, that we literally can't even watch them move. You might need to be smaller, gray, with big onboard. And again, this isn't a TED talk, by the way, about the human skin can see. There is a neurologist, if you just Google the skin can see TED talk, I'm sure you'll find it. But for 35 minutes, it's well explained that we don't understand that the first organ in the human body to develop even within womb, the skin has the ability, it has a neural network the size of the brain, and the, the skin can actually see infrared and other not conscious, like think pineal gland. What did we use it for? Was it just also third eye collective human consciousness and the synesthesia and these Wim Hof abilities, conscious control of our immune system? Or was it also technology that allows us to onboard and display technology that looks foreign to us? And when we see these entities, they can say they are whatever they want. Because when you're human and you choose to not reveal yourself to your, hey, we, you know, we could have cured your guys' cancer years ago, but mm, you know, the last time we did it didn't go so good. So you're kind of on your own. You know, there's like a million bad mental decisions that you go down, like, well, if I really had the knowledge and power to help, would I? Or have they? Or what is the actual reason why, yeah, we're an alien. Ooh, yeah. And you know, it's like, we can't really help them. Don't let them know where they're at. You know, there's this shift from, again, seeing every single one of these races as a foreign entity to the planet would be totally cool if we didn't have engineered soil, polygonal masonry, and a whole crap load of math that indicates that we were way more advanced and genetically diverse. And, and, and we haven't even unpacked genetic diversity that appears there are cuts in our genes that geneticists have gone over even in mainstream shows whether you pick the tv show you want to get into the human genome and all the things that look like we have cuts in our dna but in ancient antiquity and then here are all these mummies like the paracas that again if we actually were doing genetic testing are they just a different version of us or like those giant skeletons if we could dna and extract are we looking at animals by the way animals plants soil that was engineered terraformed on what is essentially a giant what we don't recognize as a technology where the joke may be and this shouldn't take away from the wonders of nature but the idea that nature is not natural that nature is part of a bioengineered computer, uh, terraformed to work in harmony with itself because it was managed by a very advanced civilization that through probably many trials and errors balanced out everything. Uh, not like, hey, Johnny Appleseed, you know, we need this many apple trees. 
Um, the seismic meta researchers that I was telling you about earlier, they looked at the city of Bologna, Italy, and those big towers. They looked at Greco-Roman amphitheaters. They study the seismic metamaterials in the soil. I, I, their papers, you can look their names up in my book. But the point is, they determined that if you placed, think Sequoia or giant redwoods, and if you place the engineered soil and sift it, and you decrement it all together, and you have whole cities that can be muted. And along with megalithic, one more thing we haven't talked about is stone spheres. They're found all over the planet. What a lot of people think of are the big ones, like the ones in Costa Rica that were found when they started doing banana plantations, and they're hollow. And uh, at first, they were considered to possibly be concretions. And then the story is, well, they carved them, and they're super, super round. Well, that's not true. They're actually different shapes. So if you exclude erosion and exclude that they've been recarved and possibly consider like polygonal masonry that there could have been metal, wood, plastics, glass, uh, mica, a million different piezoelectric slash electronics on them slash in them slash these seismic metamaterial researchers did a whole thing with, with one by one meter concrete spheres. And they determined, and I, and I, this, this is some of the most exciting stuff along with the engineered soil. Sorry, no sexy mummies with golden statues. But if you take stone spheres, pick a layer, not below just one building, whole city structures. They determined that depending on how you cut or manage stone spheres, and mind you, they're, they're found in Bosnia to 64 tons. They're found in China. They're found in the Arctic Circle in Russia. They're found not just in Costa Rica, they were found in San Francisco, they were found all over the earth, and everyone's like, what are these things? And the reality is, is that here is brand new research from the last couple of years that's showing these are, there, and they weren't even referring to the old ones, they were just doing seismic metamaterial research and what would keep whole cities, what would be a good wave resignator. And there's two parts to that. One is to cancel waves, one is also to collect and transmit and transform or continue to a teleport a wave uh, for layman's terms. And the reality is uh, these stone spheres are everywhere. And we think of them as an independent object or that they were above ground or that they were buried with a chief. Yeah. Again, somebody came around and maybe adapted the stone sphere to a new use, but these things are not perfectly round. Getting back to that, it's not because they couldn't make perfectly round. They have an eerie, uh, the way they seem finished and polished, the surfacing, it would be great to get them in an electron microscope, but really makes them trippy is that I think that they're egg-shaped. They are slightly not round because they represent the actual frequencies they would be corresponding with. So it's another layer to the frequency and wave measuring abilities of this ancient society that we have yet to look at. And like I said, talking to Muhammad yesterday, him going, Jared, no one's done that here in Egypt. And I said, if you had the money and unlimited budget, what would you, what, what, based on what I'm telling you, what foundation, what would you look at first? And he goes, hands down, Great Pyramid. I mean, think about how big it is. Why is it still level? Oh, they set them on really big stones. Yeah, the stones, it doesn't matter. You have seen the earth? It's a little bigger. And so that foundation has to sit on something. What, what, what's literally keeping it compacted? the very soil that's holding up. And mind you, the platform 
that the Great Pyramid is in is it's rock cut and it sits in to a basalt. Uh, it's inside a granite base, but it's but there as you walk the platform, you can see video. There's like this S curve of what looks like Baalbek size thousand ton stones that are blocks that are interlocking to the depths again of eight, 12 feet. And then below that, there's foundational material. And to Muhammad's point, he's like, can you imagine what that structure must look like to hold, you know, 6 million blocks and billions of pounds? And not to mention the fact that if it is a wave resonating machine, power plant, communicator of all the things that that whole system was set to do, we're, we're, we're really at the, we are, you and I are, are having the Renaissance conversation with this is the, it's not us. It's I'm, I'm saying that this period that we're in, right. I think it's going to be a new Renaissance in, in research. It's yeah. our history. It's absolutely fascinating. Um, to close out, I want to go back to something you mentioned briefly about how the, this new kind of disclosure thing coming from the mainstream media, uh, how it, they always go back to, they're trying, it seems like they're really trying to push an off-planet agenda. We have found off-planet materials, uh, off-planet this, these vehicles were not from Earth. Um, it seems like yeah. that lately they're pushing, they're kind of trying to connect these alien dots, and I'm wondering Wondering if it's because the uh, the fact of that it's just you know advanced human civilizations is so important and we have so many hidden I guess abilities and things that are yeah. locked up inside us that that they don't want us to put these these things together. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah. And here's something I haven't actually mentioned before, but it it goes around in my head. I've actually not mentioned this in all the interviews I've been doing, and that's or even talked about yet in the book in my last book, which is there is a chance that there is some encounter we've had that we may have lost, obviously, and there might be remnants of that high tech society, but they're not obviously on a planetary wide occupation. They're they choose to stay away from us. They let us alone. Like we leave our tri 150 tribes alone all over the planet, but there's just not the same number. And is it possible that we almost beat somebody somewhere that was not us, that it wasn't an internal fight. And the reality is that it might make somebody somewhere nervous that we could get back up on top, that we could come out of our amnesia that we might remember that we lost, uh, that our genetic memories kick in instead of being 10 to 15% conscious, we collectively, that's why I think every human being on the planet is worth something. The collective human consciousness here, people need to understand this. We do not need less people. We have, if you, if you gave everyone on this planet an acre, you can fit every human being on this planet in two Texases, two and a half Texases. That's how few people are on this planet. But the reason we have nanotechnology and 3D printing and uh, conscious control of our immune system again is through a combination of that human collective human consciousness that has the ability to individually reactivate not only internal instincts, which are also genetic memories, but collectively, even though you're not consciously tapping into it, the, the scope and breadth and width of our inventions today are different than if we were a half 500 million people and Leonardo da Vinci, he was imagining really complicated wood screws. He wasn't imagining graphing conductors for nano uh, uh, 
you know, motherboards for quantum computers. That's because even if you devalue or there's this gray state analogy that there's this, uh, that there's a level of humanity that's worth losing. I'm telling you right now, every human being, as cliche as it sounds, every human life is valuable, but it's not just for what you think. It's because this collective human consciousness is being tapped into and individuals are 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 coming up with that those these new solutions and so the alien thing uh again the facts are that we've been very advanced in a time period that we don't know about in that time period things like the black knight satellite exist there are why wouldn't we leave the planet already why wouldn't we have already gone to mars and the moon and occupied these locations and or gone further. And so when signals come back, you'll get this news story. A signal is coming back to Earth. It's an alien. Okay, well, we we grow bricks in labs now. We can actually program bricks, biological bacteria to grow that are actually stone, and we can actually tell them how to grow. This is a thing. You can look it up. We can we can program bricks. So what would a what would an is it an asteroid or is it a high technology satellite that was sent out that it looks like a rock, but in reality, it's a self-sustaining biological computer that can sustain space travel. Just we've only recently, you know, that we discover 5,000, approximately 5,000 species a year right now for 40 years we've been discovering, and we're not talking just bacteria and fungus and virus. We're discovering Oh, we didn't know that thing was alive still. And it's a bird. It's a lizard. It's that, like literally thought that was extinct. We even knew about it, but we're still discovering. We don't even know what's on this planet. So stop assuming how many people should be on it. Stop assuming we know our history. And here we are with this alien idea that if something's coming from Mars, uh, yeah, we have to consider that we were already there. Richard Hoagland is a big proponent of this. Um, and I can't disagree that it's possible that we already populated the solar system. And in another great, awesome series is Pierce Brown's uh, novels, uh, Red Rising. You know, it's all about a human solar system population. And this is exactly that. They possibly warded out and or left and some didn't or some did. And here we are getting these echo communications from either lost ancient technology satellites, or there's the Black Knight, or there's, according to Eric Von Danigan, six or eight other satellites within orbit that seem alien or, uh, again, ancient, but higher technology, and they're in orbit. So those are things that NASA and other organizations don't share with us. And your ears have to be suspect if if we hadn't had all this stuff in the ground and if we didn't have all these genetic anomalies that exist in us, it wouldn't show the longevity for, so if somebody shows up to the planet and says, you know, we're the first aliens to have ever been here and we're from somewhere else. Yeah. Okay. Probably maybe. Yeah. Okay. But, but I have all these weird ancient cuts in my genome and we have all these giant ancient advanced structures. So you got to ask yourself, Am I talking to somebody in a Halloween mask? Am I talking to someone that's chosen to trip out their genome and they don't want to let us know that, hey, we could have saved you a thousand years ago or 800 million times, but we didn't. And well, we have a really good reason. 
but we're here to help now. I mean, you're not going to present yourself as a, I'm actually a local. You, it, it's easier to say you're an alien. It's either to, to, to disinformation of it, it whether you're manipulating a government uh, or whether you're just choosing not to reveal yourself to the general anthropology of the planet. You know, it's easier to just stay doing what they've been doing and coming and going and doing what they got to do and carrying on their parent, their teenage kids, you know, eighth grade experiments with cows and an occasional abduction. I mean, that's the, that's the sarcastic point, but the, the truth is it's exciting to look at this lost ancient technology and these reactivations and this collective consciousness awakening, because I don't think it's because a benevolent alien race from somewhere else is noticing. Because if you have the power of the atom and you can program and 3D print anything you want, um, they're not here for minerals. They're not here because it's not something they can create. It is, even if it's a sub light speed uh, technology that got them here in multiple generations, the level of technology it takes to travel the distances that we have in space include so much technology that we haven't talked about, like including aeroponics, uh, which is atomized water, which I'm, I'm an experimenter of. And that was something NASA developed in the 70s so that we could maybe get to Mars to grow without soil. These are all technologies that, again, they just, when we have this broader discussion, maybe as we talk it out next time, the reality is it's it's a very hard paradigm to break in people that are going from this 1950s saucer comes to earth, ramp comes down, look out for the dude with, you know, one eye. And we we start there rather than, oh, we did this. Oh, wait. Well, not only did we do this, but they're still here. Well, why aren't they coming to Thanksgiving? Because, <laughs> right. you know. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And I'd love to talk about the the technological aspects that we haven't got to. I mean, there's so much that that goes into just that alone. Uh, I mean, you write about frequency, vibration, technology, genetic technology yeah. from ancient civilizations. There's so much about this that we could get into. Yeah, I do, I do definitely want to continue a series of interviews about this. It's great stuff. Yeah. And even if it, and again, obviously, of course, yeah, I would love for people to grab the book. Um, but the uh, uh, yeah. Do you, I mean, I thank you for not letting me shut up for, for an hour. Uh, but what, no, what do you have? Do you, do you want to cover anything else right now? Or are, are we kind of wrapping up? Well, we're wrapping up. The the only the other thing that I'd kind of like to mention is when you, whenever you were saying how you know there's so much just on our own planet that we haven't discovered, we're coming up with new species every day. Our oceans, our vast oceans, yeah. we have. There's so much of our oceans that we don't even know about. What could be there? I mean, when you add that in, that's like a whole nother world on its own. Yeah, and we just found organisms that live in the ocean that literally don't breathe oxygen. So we have found the first living creatures on our own planet that don't need oxygen. And so what does that look like? And then uh, for people's for giggles, uh, look up why are octopuses alien? If you want to have a good time with biology. Seen that one. That's very interesting. Yeah. Uh, octopus don't make any sense. And I cannot remember the author, but there's another one about the human eyes, uh, the way the human eye functions, the actual, the way the human eye is constructed and actually communicates information. There's some really interesting stuff. And again, it's the same thing. It's marine 
archaeology. I spent of the three and a half years we did to work on the book, I have some maps in my book that include not just what Doggerland looked like, but the like uh, the Caribbean, the Mediterranean. These are popular areas for people to imagine, and the Baltic. These were lakes in a period that was occupied by humans. The amount of when we when you look at archaeology today and say what were advanced ancient people like, well, thank God we have what we do have above water, but the level of and complexity not not a hundred feet into the water and go, oh yeah, well you know this used to be Alexandria, like there's a sunken cities tour that was out for a couple of years. I think they're still going around. It's super cool, super awesome to go see. They found a bunch of stuff that was part of Alexandria, and people think, oh yeah, well it's it's right off of Italy, so it's uh, Roman, it's Greek, it's uh oh it's right off of Egypt, so it's Egyptian. No, no, no. Think millions of miles, including engineered soil, including an article just a week ago about sedimentary, saltwater sedimentary, excuse me, they actually found uh, dogger land, uh, fern foliage information within the granular settlements under the ocean. You know, saltwater destroys all sorts of stuff. But they actually identified what would have been fauna up when Doggerland was above uh, water. And that that's huge. That's nanoarchaeology to tie it back to the beginning. And the maps I made are like, okay, what does the world look like with the coastlines of these ancient high technology? And, and what would have been, remember, there are tribes. There are people. We leave tribes alone now. Why wouldn't people leave tribes alone while you have a super advanced flying saucer society? They're still going to leave those people alone. Uh, that, that's why we have a recent discovery of an eight-mile-long, 25- to 50-foot-high wall with uh, petroglyphs on it in Colombia that just made the news and everyone's excited about it. It's like, first off, it's eight miles long. It's up to 50 feet tall, and no one noticed it. But that... Besides the point, because we found we found like forty uh, giant geoglyphs in Nazca that yeah they've been flying over Nazca. Uh, the German archaeologist she looked at it uh, for fifty years and they're still finding geoglyphs from the air. We didn't notice them. So there's always ancillary uh, mimicking tribal societies, and it wouldn't have been any different back then. The difference is is that instead of looking at the continental United States, as an example, if Nevada was the West Coast and Ohio was the East Coast, think about all the history that would be gone from New York to LA and and all of it would be underwater. That's uh, um, that's a microcosm of what we're missing in the archaeological record. But thank God it lives on in genetic memory, which we touched on a little bit last time. But like you said, I guess, well, we're going to have to go into it when you, you know, we're going to have yeah. to reschedule. We're, yeah, we're going to have to schedule a whole new show because this is there's so many rabbit holes to go down. Uh, Jared, thank you so much again. Go out and get Jared's book. It's not aliens. It's worse. It's us. Uh, they can find that on Amazon, right? Yeah. Or if you want to sign copy for a few bucks more, you can go to notaliens.com. I also have a member area up. I'm offering a free book for six months or two free books for a year. Basically, I want your small espresso money, but I'm also experiencing the same thing you are. I want to, I want to include, you know, this is new, actually, you're the first person I've talked about this with. I want to provide exclusive content. I want to do interviews that 
not only I share some of it, but I have exclusive work. I am continuing my research in uh, those plannings, uh, pictures from archaeologists and work I have exclusively on, not aliens. If you want to grab a membership, that would be awesome because I think that you and I, people like us, are going to continue to be censored. And the problems you're having right now are the same ones I've heard from so many other people, some great researchers everywhere. And I don't want to experience that either. So I've chosen to build a member area. It's on notaliens.com. Although you don't have to do any of that to just get a book, get a book for Christmas. When I say I sign them, I actually sign you your book and send it to you. If you're out of country, there is a bit of a problem. It takes a couple of weeks and it costs a lot more because it comes from me. I don't just pre-sign a bunch of books and ship them out from some magical warehouse. So that's that's going on. Otherwise, go to Amazon and uh, you know get something local, get reading. And uh, I always, of course, for your interview, uh, I always list where I'm interviewing and I always provide a link. So that's always on the main page. I always want to get people up because this is our history. It's our research. It's our genetic memories that even if you don't have a serious interest, I know that this this does relate to your health. It relates to your diet. It relates to your uh, meditative mindset. All this research, all the things we're talking about are truly reactivating something that we're at a point that is, like you said, from the beginning, it's some sort of an awakening. And there's uh, it's just really exciting times it's, right now. It's, it's the most exciting times, uh, I think, in our modern history. And I think we have some some really interesting things to look forward to. I think modern academia is squirming right now, and uh, they're going to be turned yeah. on their heads very soon. But, yeah, you know, that they, they should uh, embrace it because who, which one of us have not been wrong about something? You know, it's like you guys have the tools, you have the equipment. Okay, get over it. You're super wrong. Don't 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 base your life work on a theory. Base it on the be the, be the university that that put more facts on the table than anyone else in 150 years. Have that be your bragging right. Yeah, that Just, would that would be something to see that. <laughs> yeah, words of encouragement. Yeah, uh, we're not going to burn you at the stake. This is not a Frankenstein situation. Yeah, it'd just be something that uh, unexpected. But Jared, thank you again so much yep. for coming on. And of course, we're going to have to do a follow-up and talk again soon. Yeah, thanks for having me and thanks for everyone listening.